you would please take your Bibles and open to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. We'll be looking at different passages of scripture, so if you want to keep your finger here and we'll look. The Bible is filled with instances of people questioning God. And I'll give you several examples here at the beginning. Um, But the first one that comes to mind for me is Psalm 73 where the psalmist writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it really stands in contrast to an earlier psalm, Psalm 40. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. And what the psalmist in 73 describes is a situation in which he almost slides back into the pit uh, where God had taken him out of. Why? He doesn't understand why things are the way they are. It doesn't make sense to him. And he questions God. And then we have the wonderful example of Habakkuk. The book opens with Habakkuk complaining about the violence and just the sheer wickedness of his people who are supposed to be Israel, God's chosen people, they're just absolutely terrible. This is, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and com- conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that, the just- so that justice is perverted. He cries out to God, why? And then God answers him and says, oh, don't worry about it. I'm going to send the Babylonians to punish them. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Well, Habakkuk can't believe it. Yes, he's upset that his people are wicked, but the Babylonians are even worse. And why would God use people who are worse than than the Jews to punish the Jews? So again, he questions God. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Okay, they're bad, but at least they're more righteous than the Babylonians. You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them out with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying the nations without mercy? This this cannot be. God, why are you tolerating this? The Babylonians who are worse than the Jews should not be used to punish the Jews. So the next chapter opens with these words. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. That is God. And what answer I am to give to this complaint. Habakkuk basically says, I want an answer. I'm going to wait till I get one. When it comes to the issue of questioning God, I see at least two levels of questioning God. Um, And I don't want to make this absolute or some kind of technique, 
But it is something I think we find in scripture. The first level is what we, we have just heard in Psalm 73 and in Habakkuk chapter 1. They are questioning God about the how, the what, the when, the why of his workings in history, which include us because we're a part of history. They want to know why these things are happening. And I would say that this is not sinful. This is not wrong. Because they find their answer, they find their anchor. And when they start, their anchor is in God's character, in his person, and in his being. If you look at these passages that I've just mentioned, they begin with this anchor. In Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is who God is. God is good. And then from there, they can ask a question. And then in Habakkuk, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? Um, My God, my Holy One. This is who God is. Habakkuk sees this. And before he begins to ask the question, he is rooted in the character of God. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. This is who you are. And this is the foundation of their questions. So in a real sense, this level of questioning is rooted in the knowledge of who God is. And we see this time and time again. Just one more example. The Bible is filled with them. But Abraham, when God tells him, the Lord Jesus appears to him and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. When the Lord tells him this, then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You're going to kill everybody, whether they're good people there or not? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? In other words, this is who you are. And I know who you are, but what you're going to tell me about what you're going to do, I'm really having a problem with it. And so Abraham questions the Lord in this matter. Who God is provides the answer to our questions, the security and the peace to know sometimes the how, the when, and the why. I said sometimes because there's a problem. God is infinite and God is perfect. We are finite. We are far from perfect. And so while the answers are there, we in fact may not be able to see them I think just because of our own weakness, our own sinfulness, our own finiteness. We are reminded time and time again in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we are to rest in him. This is from the King James, as I remember as a child, from Isaiah 26. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. That is, God keeps people who trust him. In Philippians chapter 4, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I remember hearing a lecture once where somebody asked during the Q&A, uh, what is the peace of God? And the person answering said, you mean the one that transcends all understanding? Um, there's something beyond our ability to understand, but if we trust God, we are given his peace. In Hebrews 11, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So that's the first level, which is rooted in God's character. The second level questions God's character. 
It doesn't simply question his actions, it questions his character. It questions him about the how, the what, the when, the why of his workings based on his character and saying basically you're not fair, you're not just, you're a terrible person. And this kind of questioning is sinful. This is what we find in our text today. If you look in Malachi chapter 2, verse number 17, it's the last verse of chapter 2. By the way, just a reminder, the chapter divisions are not inspired. They were done much, much later. And verse number 17 actually begins with chapter 3. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? This is a questioning apart from faith. Because we can, in fact, question God in faith. The examples we saw earlier. These people trust God. Because they trust him, they can then ask him, why are you doing what you're doing? But if, in fact, we don't trust God, then, in a sense, we go to a lower level in terms of questioning God. And here, I think, well, here we are in great danger. It's a dangerous place to be. Because unbelief is always dangerous a number of reasons I'll just mention two first of all if we are in unbelief when God is seeking to correct us if we are in unbelief we don't see it as correction we don't see that God in fact is trying to educate us if you wish to tell us how we're supposed to live we in fact will see it as something else because we are in unbelief but also when we are in unbelief the truth becomes less clear When God speaks, when we hear it, when the Spirit is trying to guide us, we just can't see it as clearly or hear it as clearly as we should. When we trust God, the message isn't crystal clear because we're sinners, but it is certainly more clear than when, in fact, we don't believe God. And just think in in personal relationships. When you trust someone and they tell you something, it's much easier to grasp it than when someone you don't trust tells you something. You're already beginning, what, what is this person telling me and why are they telling me this and what are their motives? And suddenly, while they may be telling you something that is in fact correct, you don't see it because you don't trust them. When people do not believe and when people are disobedient, the truth of God becomes less clear. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. When he taught or spoke to the public, he spoke in parables. To his enemies, he spoke in questions. This is a fascinating aspect of the Gospels. And to his disciples and his followers, he gave the explanation. He was clear. His disciples asked him about this. The disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever he has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Let me read that again. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. That is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not understand. Hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will ever be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. 
But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. The principle we find in scripture is that the degree of clearness or openness is directly related to the level of faith or trust or obedience in the life of the listener. To a person who is open, the truth is spoken clearly. To someone who is an adversary, who is adversarial, the, the, the truth is not spoken as clearly. Because in many ways, as Jesus puts it, you're casting pearls before swine. If people do not want to hear the truth and you speak it clearly, they just sort of treat it like trash. It is the person who wants to hear the truth, who is given the truth clearly. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, what must we do? Repent and be baptized. Very clear. Um, the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very clear. But for other people, it isn't given as clearly. I don't have it here in my notes, but John chapter 6, I think, is a perfect example of this. You look, and as the chapter progresses, it's a rather long chapter, the message of Jesus becomes more and more obscure. That by the end of the chapter, Jesus says, if you don't drink my blood and eat my flesh, people are freaking out. You know, is this cannibalism? Well, no, because they were, they didn't trust him, they didn't believe him, they wanted to set the agenda, and therefore the truth was not made as clear to them as to those who believed. So at the end, Jesus asks Peter, are you going to leave too? And they're like, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Okay, this is someone who is open, to whom Jesus can speak the truth clearly. So we may question God. That is not necessarily wrong. we may not question his character. To do so is sinful and is wrong. When we question God, why he is doing what he's doing, we may not get the answer that we want. Consider that Paul asked three times for the Lord to take the, away the thorn in the flesh. The Lord's answer, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, that's really nice, but it doesn't answer my question, does it? It does not answer the question. But because Paul was a man of faith, what God said was enough. And consider Job. When God finally speaks to Job and gives him these three chapters and talks about his work in creation, um, Job never gets an answer to his question. But by the end of the book, he doesn't need one because he trusts God. So we may not understand why God does what he does and we can question him about that, but we cannot question his character. To do so is wrong. To do so is sinful. And we will not hear the truth clearly because of our unfaith, our unbelief. The passage we are looking at says, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? This is a questioning of God's character. We have two statements or assertions here and one question. Everyone who does evil is good in the eyes of God, statement number one. Number two, the Lord is pleased with them. He delights in them. And then third, we have the question, where is the God of justice? The statements are completely contrary. It's absolutely the opposite of what God has said about himself in Scripture. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. This is from Proverbs 17. 
Isaiah 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. To say that God delights in evil doers, he sees them as good, he takes pleasure in them, this is blasphemy. It's nothing short of blasphemy. They aren't questioning God, they're questioning God's character. By the way, the word in Hebrew that to delight in or is pleased with in the NIV is used properly of God in other places. Hosea 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I delight in mercy. In Micah 6, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Psalm 51, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Those in Malachi's day had actually reversed this. And they now see God basically as evil. As far as they were concerned, God had not favored them. They're the chosen people. He had not favored them with material prosperity. It was, in fact, the bad guys, the Persians, the overlords, who were being blessed, who were rich, who were prosperous. So it seems that God likes evil people and he doesn't like his own people. So the last part of this is a question. Where's the God of justice? God as a God of justice is a central theme in the Old Testament. Read the prophets time and time again. They talk about God as a God of justice. Where is the God of justice? Malachi's audience is asking. Well, there's a problem here. Who's defining justice? Justice according to what standard? For the prophets, God is a God of justice based on his character. He is holy. Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. Malachi's audience is defining justice based on their financial status. Because they were not prospering materially, that was the definition of justice for them. If I'm doing well financially, then there is justice in the world. If I'm hurting financially, if I'm really struggling financially, there is no justice in the world. Where is the God of justice? God says he's a God of justice, but where is he? They were unable, I think, because of their unbelief, because they're on level two, if you wish, to see the hand of God in their lives, to discern that God is trying to correct them. He is rebuking them and trying to get them back on the path that they should be on. Because of that, they say, we want the God of justice. But not really. They really don't, as we will see in a moment in chapter 3. And it goes on into chapter 4. They're waiting for the coming day of the Lord. This is an expression we find throughout the prophetic writings. It is a day in which the Lord will come. And they saw it as a day when everything will be made right and the Persians will be wiped out, and they will be prosperous, the Jews will be prosperous. They're waiting for the day of the Lord. Um, Yeah, that's not exactly how it's going to be. And because they're in unbelief, they're at level two, they can't see, they can't hear clearly. They don't get the message. And Micah, or Malachi, the Lord through Malachi, is trying to convey to them this message. In verses 1 through 12 of chapter 3, we see two characteristics of God. We'll only look at the first one today, and that is that God is just. And then the Lord willing, we will look at the second one next week, that God is faithful. 
The key to this passage is found in verse number 6. If you look at chapter 3, verse number 6. I, the Lord, do not change. Somehow, the Jews imagined that God had changed sides. That he used to be their God, and now he's on the side of the Persians. So they're saying, where is the God of justice? And God says, "Uh, I don't change. I am the God of justice. So, that God is a God of justice, and that his justice will be seen, is presented in five different illustrations in verses 1 through 6. First of all, God is just in his preparation. People are wondering, where is the God of justice? Well, he is preparing the way. Look at the beginning of verse number 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. This is connected to what we hear in, um, I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 40. A voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In the ancient world, the time before, telegraph before cell phones and all that if a king was in fact to pass through a city a town or a village he wouldn't just simply come in with his entourage there would in fact be messengers who would go ahead to say the king is coming so that everyone could clean up the town and maybe put out uh, a buffet or something you know to make ready for the king well god is king and before the coming day of the lord there will be a messenger who will in fact say the day of the Lord's coming. The Lord is coming, and you need to prepare yourselves. Well, next Sunday begins Advent season, the first day of Advent, and we're reminded of John the Baptist, who was sent to prepare the way of the, of, of the Lord. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. Later in Malachi, we'll hear more about this preparation in chapter 4, verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. When Jesus was asked about John the Baptist, um, he answered, This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. John is, was, in fact, the messenger that was sent to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Jesus goes on to say, And if you are willing to accept it, That is, if you believe, if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. If you believe that God is trustworthy, then John was the fulfillment. Someone had come to prepare the way for the Lord. So the Lord is just. He isn't just going to swoop in and with no announcement. Lord, we wish you had sort of given us some advance notice. We could have prepared things. He is. He is going to send John the Baptist. God is also just in his arrival. When the messenger has prepared the way, the Lord will come suddenly. Okay? But there is the preparation of the messenger. Uh, the second part of verse number one. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. The suddenly is unexpectedly. The messenger has been there. But you know how kings are. They may, they may delay. They may not come when you think they're going to come. 
but the messenger has been sent, and then the Lord will come. Where is the Lord of justice? When the day comes, he, in fact, will be there. By the way, this messenger is the messenger of the covenant. And this is the same messenger that the Lord sent ahead of Israel while they were in the wilderness. I suspect there is much about the wilderness experience that we don't know. And because we are so New Testament oriented, we tend to ignore it. Um, I believe that it was the Lord Jesus who was with Israel in the wilderness. He was the messenger who went ahead of them. Um, The Lord says, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. God's name was in him. That is, it was God. It was the Lord Jesus who was with Israel as they went through the wilderness, which, by the way, makes their rebellion all the more uh, horrendous, heinous, because the Lord Jesus was with them. The name of God, which stands for his character, his person, his attributes, yeah, he was there with Israel. And by the way, Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. You hear that? They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. This same messenger will unexpectedly, well, there will be a a messenger ahead, will appear unexpectedly in his temple. So he is God. It is his temple. He was there at Sinai. He is the mediator of the new covenant. And he will come. So this is a good thing, right? The coming of the Lord. This is what they want. Where is the God of justice? Well, guess what? He's coming. Yeah. um, Who can endure the day of his coming? Is asked. Who can stand when he appears? God is also justice. Thirdly, in his refining. He will come to correct his people. He will come to refine them. And the work of God in cleansing his people is portrayed in two examples, fire and soap. That fire is used to uh, purify a metal, to get rid of the impurities, and soap is used to wash away the dirt from clothes. For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Uh, Verses 3 and 4, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. One of the things people can't seem to get is that because God loves his people, he cannot allow them to do what is wrong. He is patient, but the time will come when he will need to correct them. He is a God of justice. He's also just in his judgment. This is in verse number five. So I will come to you, I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me. See, one of the problems with unbelief, when we do not believe God, 
is we no longer fear God. Unbelief means no fear of God. It is a person who fears God, a person who believes in God, rightly reverences him. In our prayer of confession today, the, the psalmist acknowledges that God is the one who forgives sins, therefore you are feared. But if you don't believe in God, or if you think that God is less than what you, the other people say that he is, if you are an unbelief, then you do not fear God. And it shows up in your behavior. It shows up in insolent, shameless behavior. The list of sins here begin with the clear breaking of the law, sorcery, adultery, perjury, you know, bearing false witness. And then they move on to how we treat others. If we break God's law, guess what? We will treat other people badly. Defrauding, that is oppressing the hired worker. We're not paying people what we owe them. Oppressing widows and the fatherless. Depriving aliens of justice. All of these sins are the result of the reality that those who commit them do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. If you don't fear God, then you'll do pretty much whatever you want because who's going to judge me? There is no final judgment. By the way, just parenthetically, you may have noticed the deprived aliens of justice. And you might say, well, I thought aliens were the problem early on that people, the, the Levites, were marrying the daughters of foreign gods. If you read the law, you didn't have to be Jewish to live in Israel. You didn't have to be Jewish, but you had to keep the laws. And if you live in Israel and you keep the laws, you are not to be oppressed. You're to be treated fairly. But you know what? If people don't fear God because they don't really believe as they should, then they will treat other people like dirt. They will treat them as commodities. But this is not the end of the story. God is just in his patience. And yet if we didn't have verse number six, we'd really be in serious trouble. But this is the central point of the passage, I'm convinced. That I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And here we come to see by God's grace that the being and the character of God remain dependable. Israel owed its continued existence to the fact that God did not change and that God was a God of patience. If he had not been patient, then Israel would have been wiped off the planet. They would have ceased to exist. But God keeps his covenant. The Lord does not change. The psalmist writes, In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them and they will be discarded. But you remain the same and your years will never end. By the way, that's from Psalm 102. And the title for Psalm 102, A Prayer of an Afflicted Man When He is Faint and Pours Out His Lament Before the Lord. As we wear down, as we get older, as our, we become more fragile, Where's our hope? Certainly not in us because we are wearing away. We're fading away. God does not change. And we can question God as to what he's doing, but we cannot question his character. If we do, then I suspect all is lost. When we question God, and I think that everyone does, we're not zombies after all. Uh, When we question God, we must 
first of all, secure ourselves in God's character. This is who God is. And once we have done that, then we can, in fact, dive or delve deeply into the issue at hand, which may be life-threatening, which may threaten to tear us apart, which may be deep and dark and horrendous. But if we are anchored in God's character, then we can, in fact, ask God, why is this happening? And how will this turn out? We may not, in fact, get an answer. But we're in a far better place than if we cut ourselves off from faith in God. If we no longer see God as trustworthy, if we don't see him as just or as patient and unique to name any of his attributes, if we don't believe that anymore, then all bets are off. Any answer is possible. But if, in fact, we see that God is who he says he is and that he does not change, then from there we can, being anchored, we can begin to ask our questions. When we cut ourselves off from faith, our perception, our vision becomes cloudy. Our understanding becomes less than what it should be. And we will lose our way. We see this with Abraham. We see it with Job, with Paul. Because they trusted in God, they accepted his answer. I don't know that they necessarily got the answers they wanted. I don't think Paul did. I'm sure that Job didn't. And with Abraham, that whole story is misunderstood where he goes from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 and finally down to 10. Why does he stop at 10? I think at that point he's like, this is the God I trust. The judge of all the earth, this is someone I can trust. Many years ago, many years ago when I was a young pastor I was speaking to an older pastor and I don't even remember all that was going on but it was a difficult time for me um, and a dark time and I said to him you know I'm, I'm really angry with God and he said that's okay God can take it see we can in fact question God we should not question his character because God doesn't change He is patient, patient, he is just, he is merciful. And we may not understand why he does what he does in our lives, but that's okay. He knows what's going on. And if we trust him, then he knows what's going on. He knows the end of the story. We don't. And we should look to him in faith. To be anchored in God's character is to receive a word from the Lord and to continue in faith. To lose faith in God's character is to be cut off and to be sort of drift away from harbor into deep waters. God is not only just, God is faithful. And the Lord willing, we will look at this next Sunday. Let's pray together. Our Father, in our minds, we have a particular vision for our lives, how we think things should go, how we want them to work out. And often, things don't go the way we think they should or the way we planned. And sometimes really difficult things come into our lives. And we look to you and we want to know why. 
I thank you at the beginning we can say you know all things. You have a purpose in all things. That as we go through these experiences, you are seeking to teach us and to draw us to yourself. By your grace, may we trust you. Because if we have lost faith, then we have lost all. If we begin to question your character, then in fact we have cut ourselves off from you. But if by the slimmest, the thinnest thread, we can hang on to you in faith, and in the darkest times say, we trust you. We have no idea what's going on, but we trust you. And by your grace, you can raise us up. You can teach us. You can give us insight. Above all, may we grow in faith. Can't do this on our own. It is only by your grace. I thank you for your word. That we see other of your people, wiser than ourselves, questioning you. So we don't need to feel bad that we question you. But we see that we should not question your character. You are trustworthy. You are the Lord God Almighty. May we not lose hope. May we not lose faith. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we go through the coming week. And may we know that you love us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.